were running through a list of things, uh, updates back and forth. And he said, one last thing, Team Rubicon's now been incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit and you're the president of it. And I, and I, I didn't even know what a 501c3 was. I had no idea what that phrase meant. And he said, it's a nonprofit organization. You, you're the president of a charity now. And I'm like, what? That's not, that was not the plan. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. My name is Mike Spear, and our guest today is the co-founder and executive chairman of Team Rubicon, and the founder and CEO at Groundswell, Jake Wood. Jake is a friend, and someone I really respect and admire for his humble, innovative, and no-nonsense approach to impact work. Jake has always been someone for whom the mission and the people come first, and I hope that comes through in the episode. Team Rubicon has been a disruptive and wildly successful organization, shaking up the social sector for more than a decade. And I'm sure the work he's doing today at Groundswell will be no different. Enjoy the show. Jakes, thanks so much for joining us. Been a wild ride over the past, what, decade, 15 years, something like that. Really excited to record with you. Yeah, no, I'm excited to, to, join, uh, to join Cause and Purpose here. A guy like you, like most of the folks in the social sector, you could have chosen any path. There could have been a million different career paths, ways to spend your time that would have been different and possibly more directly lucrative than what we chose to do. So I always like to start by unpacking kind of where that begins. And it seems like, you know, with you, it was probably childhood. It started at a very early age. Tell, tell me about your family, kind of what that was like, where that spirit of service came from. You know, I, I'm, I'm very blessed to have grown up in an in a amazing family, you know, nuclear household, great father, great loving mother, uh, you know, wonderful sisters. Having been around the world a few times, both literally and figuratively now, I think I probably took for granted just how blessed I was to always have food on the table, always have a roof over my head, to be in a great public school system, never fearful for, you know, uh, life or property or anything like that. And, and you know, again, going to bed every night knowing that I was loved and, and taken care of. But, you know, I I had a, I guess what in the Midwest would be called maybe a typical childhood again, you know, grew up in a great area, uh, Midwestern values, all that stuff. But the one thing that, that also kind of stood out about my, my upbringing was I, I did move around a lot. So um, my dad was working in manufacturing jobs and um, that took us kind of, you know, from Nebraska to Texas, to Europe momentarily, to Illinois, to Iowa, which is what I call home now, Iowa. Well, I shouldn't say I call home. I, California's home now, but I, when I go home, I go home to Iowa. There were a couple of experiences over the course of those years that were formative. I, I wrote about one in my book um, that happened when I was probably six or seven years old. When we were living in Europe, we were living in Austria, and it was probably 1989 or 1990. So really interesting time in Europe. You know, the Berlin Wall was just coming down. The Soviet Union was just kind of on the edge of collapse and, um, you know, a lot of tectonic shifts happening. And one weekend, my parents took my sisters and I to um, a place called Mauthausen, which had been a, a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And that was just kind of one of those really formative moments and experiences for me. You know, I think two really important lessons learned. The first is that human beings can be truly evil. And I, I think when you're six or seven years old, you have a, a pretty naive concept of what evil is. It's like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cartoons versus what the Nazis were doing to Jews and others in Europe. And then, but the second realization was, you know, you had these 
hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans that went across the Atlantic Ocean to go fight for people they'd never met in a country that they'd never been to. And that was a really remarkable thing for me to wrap my head around. So I, 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 I kind of look back at that as a kind of a formative moment in my upbringing that really got me thinking about what my role in the world could be or should be and and how I might be able to live a life for others and not just for myself. Not that I always did that, but certainly got me thinking about it at an early age. Going into the camps, could you guess what you'd seen? Did your parents frame it for you in any way? Part of the reason I ask is I grew up Jewish and I've actually never been to the camps. But when I read that story in your book, uh, Once a Warrior, it really resonated deeply, especially like how unusual it is uh, middle-class kids in the Midwest who may not have any connection with that at all, not even not growing up Jewish, to have that experience. Uh, so I, I would love to hear more about kind of how it impacted you. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I never met a new Jewish person in my life. I don't think it mattered. At the end of the day, you know, you're six or seven years old and you're staring at brick ovens that they use to burn kids your age. You know, you walk into a gas chamber and outside the gas chamber, there are black and white photographs of women and children being led off to them completely unaware that they're about to go be murdered. It, it, it's just one of those experiences where, you know, if there's a haunted place on this planet, it's it's Mauthausen and Auschwitz and Dachau and all those others, because, you know, the horrors there are just totally unspeakable. You ended up playing football and, and going to Wisconsin and making the decision to join the military after that. Was in between there, were there other sort of steps that are notable on your journey in terms of experiences you've had or decisions you made to to be more dedicated to service? When I was in Iowa and in high school, I, I started to get involved with student government and through that became responsible for various like charitable activities. So, you know, one thing that that our athletic conference in that part of the state did every year was this student hunger drive and all the schools competed against each other to, to collect food for the local food pantries. And, you know, it was something that all the schools took really seriously. And there was a lot of pride in this for, you know, for the schools that won. And our high school set a record for the year that we did it. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, all right, you know, giving back can also be fun. It can be personally fulfilling. It's not just something that you kind of have to get dragged into doing. Like you can ignite people to be passionate about it if you approach it the right way. So, I, I mean, I had a lot of fun doing that in high school. I think college, I, I felt so, you know, frankly, lucky and privileged to have the opportunity to go play football in college. I, I'll say that when I, I made the decision to go, you know, I was evaluating a bunch of different opportunities. I had the chance to go play for the service academies. You know, I had, I was getting recruited by West Point and the Naval Academy to play football there. And that, that really appealed to, you know, what had become a sense of service, a desire for service in my life. But then I just, you know, I was tempted by this idea to go to a major college football program. And I, I thought for sure I was going to go play pro. Like, I mean, like any, like any kid that's going on scholarship to a power five school, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Wisconsin. I'm going to play for four years. I'll be all conference and I'll get drafted in the NFL. And that's, that's what I'm going to do with my life. You know, that dream maybe lasted for two years on campus. And then I, I was quickly uh, convinced that I was not destined for the NFL. So I think while on campus, my my kind of search for what was next, it started almost from the beginning. I, you know, was a freshman when 9-11 happened. And I think watching those events unfold 
being only a year removed from this decision not to go to the service academies or join the military and instead go play football. That was a pretty consequential moment for me, a moment of a lot of reflection. But, you know, to be honest, like I just, I got really good at making excuses for why somebody else should go off and fight. And I, as interested in what was happening overseas as I was, you know, I was consuming as much as I could about the wars and in watching, you know, these young Americans go off. I just was like, I don't know. I don't know. Just never had the courage to make that choice. And then, you know, right as my my time plan was coming to an end, I, you know, I knew I was going to graduate. I wasn't going to go to the NFL. And I thought, okay, am I really ready for corporate America? Or should I go do this thing, you know, and answer that voice that's been chirping in the back of my head for four years? And that's when I decided to enlist. How did your family take that? <laughs> Were they surprised? Or they they say that's, of course, it's the obvious thing. I think that they were surprised, but not surprised, right? Like I, I get, yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to explain, right? I think that they kind of sat there and said, okay, this kind of makes sense because we know Jake and this is the type of thing Jake would do. At the same time, I think they were shocked. I mean, this was 2005. The wars were not going well. Battle of Fallujah had just happened. You know, the U.S. was taking massive casualties in that, and it was all over the news. And here I am saying, ah, I'm going to go do that, you know. And I think my mother was terrified, understandably. She was really stoic, though. It still amazes me the strength that she showed in that. You know, I, I, I have kids now, and my God, I, I don't know what I would do with myself if I had, you know, if we fast forwarded the clock 20 years and my daughters were going off to war. I don't, I don't know that I can handle it. I don't know that I have the same strength that my mom did. One of the things that you seem to have always done is, is just sort of shown up and sort of been there for other people. Is that something you, you, you were kind of born with or did your experience uh, seeing the camps in Europe and influence from your parents and stuff like that sort of build you into that? Because not everybody's willing to sort of throw other people on their shoulders and, and protect them, serve them in that way. I certainly think that the experience in the camps were formative and, and seeing these young allied troops show up to those camps and liberate those camps. I think yeah, I, can, I can still kind of in my mind imagine those photographs of those young GIs riding into to Mauthausen, you know, but I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. And, and I guess I, I don't maybe dispute your characterization, but, you know, sometimes I I, you know, I'm like, I, I, there's more I could do. Like, I, I think about the times I failed other people in my life and, and there's plenty of those. And in some of them, I, the failures were catastrophic. And I, so yes, I've lived a life of service as an adult. I'm really proud of that, but you know, man, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in this world that needs fixing a lot of stuff that, you know, needs doing. But as you're leaving the military, the Haiti earthquake happens and you know, some people watch it on TV and, and send some checks or, or empathize, but you decided to go show up. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So I joined the Marine Corps in the fall of 2005. I served for four years. And so I got out in the fall, late fall of 2009, the last week of October. The plan was I was going to apply to graduate school, go get my MBA. You know, the economy was in shambles. It's, you know, 2009 and, you know, I just got off two really hard, brutal combat deployments. So I'm thinking like, okay, two years to, you know, get some, get some space would be good. 
so two months later in January of 2010, I'm sitting around, I'm waiting for um, these grad school decisions to come back and the Haiti earthquake happened. And I had never thought about disaster response really. I think it was a combination of a couple of things, right? It, it was seeing just how horrific that disaster was. And, it, you know, this was playing out live on CNN. For people that don't recall, I mean, they, they estimate 100 to 150,000 people died instantly in that earthquake and another 100 plus thousand people died in the, in the coming weeks and months. So one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes of the last century, you know, just 100 miles off our shore. And then there was, so there was this, this empathy, this compassion for the suffering that was happening on the ground. And then if I'm being completely honest, there was like, you know, this cocksure young Marine who thought that he was invincible and probably had a, an overinflated sense of self who thought, well, surely I can go and help. Uh, this is exactly what I, what I do for a living. And there was a lot of naivete in that, right? Like, it, it, and so after, I don't know, five or six hours of watching the news, I finally called uh, one of the organizations that I knew was on the ground. And I, I, you know, tried to maybe drop my voice an octave and convince this woman who picked up the phone that I was the most important person in her world and that she should, you know, allow me to deploy with her teams to Haiti and help manage operations on the ground. And of course she said, Hey kid, why don't you just hang up the phone and text us $10? And and I, you know, that obviously that that was really irritating to me at the time. But of course, fast forward a decade, running a global humanitarian organization. If some idiot called me after the Haiti earthquake and told me how special he was, I'd tell him to text me ten dollars too. So I don't begrudge her or them at all. <laughs> but in the aftermath of that phone call, I started calling Marines that I'd served with and and friends, and we organized a team of of veterans and and doctors. To go down to Haiti, we went out. We went down four days later, got into Port-au-Prince. Um, things were still—I mean, it was like a civil war battlefield. That small team of eight volunteers that crossed the border, you know, was the founding team Rubicon. And uh, you know, fast forward 13 years, we've got 150,000 volunteers across North America. So pretty remarkable. The humble beginnings that 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 organization started with. You have all this military training, this logistical training you can handle. You and the rest of the team can handle themselves, you know, in some adverse situations. That was the logic that I was trying to apply. I mean, there's elements of it that are true. There, there are certainly, um, you know, we got on the ground in Haiti. And, and again, for listeners that aren't as familiar, so massive earthquake, poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere at the time, total corruption, uh, you know, a lack of government services before the earthquake, and then a total evaporation of government services following. So no police, no military, uh, the whole government bureaucracy crumbled alongside the buildings. And so total vacuum. And so, yeah, it was, it was dangerous. And, you know, there were elements of the military training that were probably helpful. And it's not just the, you know, navigating, you know, some of the, like the potential for violence, but also just like, Hey, can you throw a pack on your back and climb down this ravine across this rubble and possibly carry somebody out? Or you get down there and the first time you see an amputated limb, are you going to freeze up or have you seen it before? And, you know, tragically, I'd seen a lot of that stuff before. And so, you know, there was, there were elements of that that worked. Now, again, but there were a lot of things that we didn't know, we didn't know anything about how these situations evolve and unfold. And 
what you know the the various uh, layers of operational control and and authority were and how to navigate that and maybe in some sense our our ignorance of those things allowed us to actually operate effectively on the ground because we weren't encumbered by the system but man I, I think we're lucky that we got out of there with our lives and limbs and and we're fortunate because you know the result was this organization that's evolved from there into something that's really special today all by accident. When you arrived, how did the other eight organizations respond to you guys? Did they know what to make of, of Team Rubicon at that point or no? We were flying so low under the radar that we would occasionally encounter other eight organizations. You know, I, I remember encounters with groups like Samaritan's Purse and uh, Doctors Without Borders and, and you know several others. And in some interactions, there was a level of contempt because they knew that we were, you know, kind of outside the system. And and I, and again, fast forward the clock 10 years, I get it now because we're a part of that system. And, and there's a reason why you want really great coordination across different agencies. And you want to know that organizations are going to be operating at a high standard of care. I mean, it, there's, there's, a, there's a reason for that. There were other interactions, though, with really well-established groups who who saw that this, hey, this is not a normal operation. This is all hands on deck. And if if these yahoos are here to help, we're going to figure out a way to help them be helpful. And it was good. And, and we also were able to demonstrate our value. I mean, a, a great example, you know, the second day that we're on the ground, we evacuate some patients to a local hospital. It's like the only hospital that has an a currently operating operating room in the aftermath of the earthquake. So like getting flooded with these really severe trauma injuries. And we show up and the emergency room is just total chaos. And, you know, looking around, you kind of, somebody shouts like, hey, who's in charge here? And all the nurses and doctors kind of like look and it was just clear, like nobody was in charge. And so we basically just said, hey, everybody listen up we're in charge. <laughs> and, you know, and it basically just required somebody to, to just take command of the room and, and, and really, you know, own managing the chaos. And so, you know, we were able to demonstrate some level of competence in bringing some order to the chaos there. And, and I think that was helpful. You had organizations who were willing to follow, they just needed somebody to lead. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think that was maybe the one thing that we knew how to do in that moment was provide some leadership and, and some structure to it. So again, so many crazy stories from those first couple of days on the ground, but yeah, pretty wild. While you guys were down there, you know, you're raising money. I know your dad was instrumental in that. I think it, you know, sort of went beyond you guys' expectations pretty quick. And then somebody went ahead and incorporated Team Rubicon for you guys. <laughs> what, what was that like? And then when you got home, like, what was sort of the reaction to this structure that was now suddenly in place? Yeah. It, yeah. It was crazy. So when we first went to Haiti, we basically, I went on Facebook and I said, Hey, I'm going to go to Haiti. And if you're connected with me on Facebook, you know, me and who I am and what my background and all that stuff. If you're willing to kind of support the effort, here's my PayPal account. You know, I promise to do good with the work. And of course those, you know, people were sending in money. No, none of those were tax deductible donations. They were basically it's like my it was like a Venmo account, right? 
and shit, you know, a couple of days later, we'd raise like seventy five thousand or a hundred thousand dollars, and and the money just kept coming in because it just became, I guess, viral back before viral was a thing. So we're we're bringing more teams down. We're organizing more equipment to come in, and and a, a guy that had been a marine called my dad, who, as you mentioned, was kind of managing, I don't call it stateside logistics for us, took a week off of work to do it. I mean, he was having the time of his life. He thought this was the coolest thing ever that he was going to be a part of. And uh, so this guy, this random stranger calls my dad. He's like, hey, I'm following your son's work in Haiti online because we were running a blog. And uh, he said, I'm an attorney in Minnesota and your son's going to be have a ton of liability, either just kind of general liability or tax liability if he doesn't incorporate and figure this out. So he's offered to incorporate us for free. So my dad said, sure. So the guy does the paperwork. My mom and dad are the initial like secretary and, and treasurer of the organization. And, and I'm the president. It's incorporated in the state of Minnesota for totally random reasons. And my dad called me later that afternoon and said, hey, you know, we're running through a list of things, updates back and forth. And he said, one last thing. Team Rubicon's now been incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit, and you're the president of it. And, I, and I, I didn't even know what a 501c3 was. I had no idea what that phrase meant. And he said, it's a nonprofit organization. You, you're the president of a charity now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's not, that was not the plan. So like you said, you know, we came back a couple of weeks later and we had to figure out what to do with it. You know, and, and you know, there was debate back and forth. Do we just kind of, okay, distribute all the leftover funds and, and shut this thing down because we've got other plans for, for what we want to do, or, or do we kind of like keep this thing going and see where we can take it? And we ended up emailing all the people that had donated this money and said, Hey, we used, I don't remember what the number was, but we used 72% of the money that was donated. So if you want your pro rata share back, we'll give it back to you. So you can send it on to somebody else. that's going to continue work in Haiti long-term. Otherwise, we're going to keep the money and we, we're going we're gonna to see if we can build this into something special. We had one person request their money back out of like 2,000 unique donors. And the other 1,999 let it ride. And it probably one of the all-time best investments in, you know, in the history of the nonprofit space because it definitely paid off. Yeah. Was there resistance from you or, or from, I don't know, from Willie about you know, rolling this into like a long-term operation for you guys or did, were you sort of like all in right away no I, I think we we were we were all half in all the way <laughs> yeah. well so we we had this vision that the organization would never have full-time staff that it would always only just be a group of volunteers who when the bat signal would go up would you know we'd have a roster of 300 highly vetted people and we'd send 20 somewhere when bad things happen. I think it was maybe a combination of we didn't want to run it full time. And we, we, we didn't like the idea of somebody running it full time. We thought it was more special if it didn't have anybody on it full time. And, you know, by the end of 2010, you know, call it nine months later, it was very obvious that if it was going to do anything and be at all impactful in the world, it was going to need someone running it full time. So we went and we actually hired someone else. We hired this woman from a local university here who we had met and her name was Joanne. And we said, okay, Joanne, you're, you're going to be the full-time administrator of team Rubicon. And um, we, we made, we pulled the trigger on hiring her after we got 
this huge pledge from a donor for $100,000, which was big, big money for us. And it gave us the confidence to hire her full time. And then that donor rescinded on his pledge two months later, literally two weeks after she started. And we had to look at her and say, Joanne, this is what happened. Not sure if we can pay you beyond the next couple of months. And that was, you know, right around the same time that, that we lost Clay. And, and, you know, that's was those kind of events were the spark that, you know, at least for me, brought me into the organization full time in it to win it. But I do want to take a second, you know, just to let you talk a little bit about Clay. You know, I, I, I know about him from TR and the stories and from your book and all that. But, you know, for our audience, it maybe doesn't know who he is. Clay was a Marine that I served with in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were very close. You know, we were partners in sniper school, Iraq and Afghanistan together. I was, you know, nearby Clay when he was shot uh, on our first tour and wounded, helped get him off the battlefield. And I was the best man at his wedding. So, you know, very close. He was the first guy that I called after the, after the earthquake. He didn't, he couldn't join us with the initial team that went down, but he joined us a couple of days later and found us in the middle of the city, you know, kind of by himself remarkably. I mean, it just kind of a crazy story. And then he, he ended up taking his own life about a year after we got back from Haiti in March of 2011. It was just this, you know, total tragedy, obviously. He was a really special guy, really talented, really gifted, just struggling with, you know, his life after war and his life after the service. Uh, ultimately just, you know, decided he, you know, he couldn't go on. It was a, it was a real defining moment for the organization for a couple of reasons. One, obviously he was a major part of our first mission in Haiti. He was a major part of our second mission in Chile after a, a earthquake and tsunami there and just kind of beloved by everybody that met him. So there was just this deeply personal loss that a lot of people inside the organization felt. He's how we met that woman, Joanne, who we hired as the first administrator. She was devastated by the news. And we, we've honestly thought about just kind of packing it up. And this coincided with this, you know, this donor rescinding this pledge. And so we thought, man, we, we're not even solvent anymore. And something remarkable happened, which is in the weeks after Clay's death, we got flooded with donations in his memory to the organization to, to team Rubicon. And I can't remember what the number was 30 or $40,000 worth of checks, but it was enough where we could turn to Joanne and say like, actually like we can pay you. And it was also a moment where, you know, we just kind of looked in the mirror and said, Hey, what do we want to do? Like, do I really want to go finish this MBA and, you know, go work for Goldman Sachs or do I want to try to build something special here? And so, you know, for me, that was the moment where I decided to go in and commit to, Team Rubicon full time, you know, a little over a year after we started it. And yeah, we never looked back. Hi, Mike here. I'd like to take a quick time out from the episode to let you know a little bit more about a project we're working on called Altruist. There's a deeply held secret in the nonprofit space, which for some of you may be just a little bit controversial, and that is philanthropy does not equal in. The challenges faced by our global community are more complex and urgent than ever before. And for philanthropic funders who care about impact, for those passionate about really moving the needle on important social issues, there's very little information available to help guide the decision-making around their investments. That's where Altruist comes in. 
by seeking out the best, most innovative and promising high-impact solutions. By combining top-quality impact measurement, evaluation, and analysis with insights into social good organizations that focuses on strength and sustainability rather than overhead, Altruist helps funders of all kinds, philanthropists, family offices, foundations, and businesses, direct their resources to the programs and organizations best equipped to solve the challenges they care most about in the regions of the world they're most interested in supporting. With personalized recommendations, engaging multimedia storytelling, seamless funding execution, Altruist levels the playing field, creates unprecedented efficiencies, and most importantly, drives funding to the most impactful social good organizations around. For more information, check us out at www.altruist.org. That's www.altruous.org. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And that wasn't too long before Hurricane Sandy happened, right? Which is sort of one of the next big milestones for you guys. Yeah, so so this is April, call it 2011. You fast forward about a year and a half to the fall of 2012, and, and, you know, the organization's in dire straits again. You know, it was really hard to build a nonprofit after the Great Recession. And, you know, we were a couple of young entrepreneurs that, frankly, you know, was was hard to get people to really buy into our vision for what we were building. And so we were kind of scratching, our, scratching and clawing our way and doing some good work, responding to maybe a dozen or 20 disasters a year. But... As we approached the fall of 2012, you know, we were running out of money and looking at what bills we were going to stop paying and Hurricane Sandy hits uh, New York and it was kind of a bet on ourselves moment. We, we knew that there was a huge need and if we stepped up and kind of went all out guns blazing to, to respond, there was a decent chance we'd bankrupt the organization. But we also, you know, we weren't completely oblivious to the fact that there's a lot of money and media in New York City. And if if we did good work, um, there was a chance that somebody would notice and want to to back us. And so we made that we made that decision. We rolled the dice on ourselves and, and it was it was remarkable. You know, uh, we had big banks and um, major Fortune 500 companies come out and visit us at our work sites and and repeatedly just say the same thing like that we were running a more capable and organized and coherent response than anywhere else in the city. And, you know, people, presidents were flocking to come and work with us. You know, we had president Clinton come out with 500 volunteers one day because he was convinced that we were the only, the only organization that could effectively put 500 people to work in an afternoon. And we did. And it, you know, it just kind of hockey sticked the organization uh, in our growth. And I don't know if we would have survived if, if not for the decision to, to make that bet. One of my friends who, you know, uh, Brian Fishman was always asking like, what organization should we pay attention to? He was at Palantir at the time. Having, without the opportunity to go there and do the work with you guys, I really felt like I was in it with you, just being able to make that connection uh, for TR and was really excited about the direction that it took and, and you know, proud of all you guys, frankly, because even Brian at Palantir was sort of new in that space. Yeah. Um, well, I remember I met Brian at the Classy Collaborative and, uh, you know, I think I was speaking on a panel and he came up to me afterwards. He's like, hey, I'm Brian Fishman. I work for Palantir. And I think he just kind of assumed that I knew what Palantir was because I was a Marine and Palantir had done a bunch of work with the Marine Corps, but kind of after I'd gotten out, so I, I wasn't actually familiar with it. 
So then he goes on to explain what it does. And for anybody that isn't familiar, it's a kind of a big data intelligence uh, platform, really complicated and technical. So he goes into explaining what it does. And I looked at him and I go, I actually have no idea what <laughs> you just said, but he, he was convinced that Palantir could be helpful to us. And so it was probably only a couple of weeks later when Sandy hit, he kept calling me, kept just calling me three, four times a day. Jake, let us help. Let us help. I'm like, dude, I still don't know what you do. And he goes, just trust me, we can help. So I said, all right, bring two of your engineers, fly to JFK uh, in New York, and we'll, we'll pick you up. Just don't get in the way and try to add value where you can. And I tell you, you know, fast forward 96 hours, I looked really smart because they were so incredible. And, and you know, I'm joking because I can't take credit for any of what they did. Um, but basically, they transformed how, how we were collecting damage assessments across these structures throughout the city and then geo-mapping that in a way that was easily shareable with, with city officials. And it, it seems silly to think that back in 2012, disaster response organizations were still doing these structural assessments and not just structural, but all damage assessments via paper, like pads of paper, they're, you know, pen and paper. And then they're handing in these paper reports. Lord knows who to, I can promise you, nothing was done with those reports. Like nobody was collating them and, you know, synthesizing them into any sort of actionable intelligence. And that's exactly what Palantir did. And so, you know, in many ways, because of that partnership, we were able to really move the entire disaster response space forward into this geospatial you know, disaster mapping, which was one of the things that really put us on the map after 2012. What is just in the general sense, technology done for, for TR and, and how have you guys continued to invest in it? Yeah, you know, the way I used to say to people is, you know, the US military is the most technologically enhanced in the world. And young soldiers and sailors and Marines, when they're on the battlefield and they encounter a problem, they expect there to be like a cutting edge technological solution or force multiplying platform to help them overcome that. And so, you know, you think about the kind of the digital native volunteers that we had who, again, had been using really cutting edge technology. It was really easy for us to get people to adopt this stuff quickly. You know, the dem the average demographic for a lot of these disaster response organizations out there are retirement age dem you know demographic, and you know they're just naturally not as leaning into technology as a, a twenty five year old sergeant coming out of you know the Air Force. So we saw that kind of early as something that could help differentiate us that we could that we could bring to the space, and so we've. We've been fortunate to partner with great technology companies over the years. And, and some of that was quid pro quo. You know, these, these companies would say, hey, we've got this really great tech. We'd love to get somebody to take it out in the field and, and kick the tires on it. We'll let you have it for free. We'll send some engineers and, and, and consultants along with you. And so we get access to this cutting edge stuff at no cost. They get this feedback loop in, in return. And I mean, I look to some of those partnerships like we had with Palantir and Microsoft and these uh, satellite imagery companies and man, really, really powerful stuff. After getting back from Sandy, you sort of had this like a recommitment moment where you saw the trajectory TR was on and you essentially fired everyone and gave them a chance to come back <laughs> to their, their jobs in a new way, which 
I've heard in other places, but it's certainly not certainly not much as early as when you guys did it. Can you talk about that decision and that moment to really ask everyone to up their game as you enter the new phase? Yeah. So so basically through the first couple of years, basically through Sandy, um, from 2010 through the end of 2012, we we basically embraced this call it cowboy culture where relatively few formal systems and processes and and you know we were just kind of like hey we're just going to invent it as we go in this approach and you know we saw during Sandy hey the stakes were getting really high you know we were lucky that nobody got really hurt in Sandy we we weren't we didn't have uniform safety standards and precautions or training programs and it was just it was just evident coming back from Sandy I always I joke that the the first two phone calls I made when I got back from Sandy were our insurance broker. And I told him to triple our insurance coverage and to our lawyer <laughs> to make sure that we did a scrub of our uh, release of liability waivers. And, and so it was, it was obvious that one, the organization was facing greater and greater risk Two, we were finally at this precipice where you could sense that we were onto something special. The stakes were getting high and the decisions that we made in the next six to 12 months after Sandy, we're going to determine whether or not we were going to be just like this middling also ran nonprofit or whether or not we were going to grow it into, you know, an upper echelon top nonprofit in America. But that latter was a choice, right? It was a choice to be great. And we had to, to actively choose that. Probably three or four months after Sandy, we had a, a leadership conference. You know, we only had, I don't know, 12 or 15 full-time staff members. And so we had a bunch of volunteer leaders that we relied on. So we brought, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them into LA. And I basically, you know, told everybody that they were out of a job. I told them, you know, I kind of outlined what the expectations were for the organization going forward, how the roles and responsibilities needed to be delineated. But I think more importantly, you know, communicating to them that, hey, this, this is going to no longer be a, a disaster response club. This was going to be a real professional organization and, and people were going to have to approach it like that. And, and I knew that that was going to, you know, frankly, piss some people off. And it did. It did. I mean, we, we had some people who did not reapply for TR 2.0. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge them that. They were, they were hugely consequential to the prior phase, you know, TR 1.0. I think that they could have fit into 2.0, but they chose not to. And that's, and that's, you know, that's just their choice, but uh, they've contributed to where we are today. And we're, you know, we'll always be grateful for that. How did you see the culture change? I mean, was it markedly different after that? No, I think the spirit was still the same. You know, it was, it was a, a lean into the moment spirit. Um, it was high in camaraderie, high in compassion and empathy, high in having fun, but we knew that we were just, we were going to have to evolve, right? And, and I think that's one of the things about culture and leaders uh, that's kind of universal. Like if your culture never changes, and I'm not talking about like abrupt departures culturally, I'm talking about like an evolution, like what a, a cultural value means one thing at 20 employees. It means something totally different at 200 employees. That doesn't mean that that value failed as you grew. It means it had to evolve as the organization evolved. And that's where a lot of leaders and organizations fail is they don't adapt to these stages of growth. So, you know, I think the spirit of everything that we stood for remained the same. It's just how they manifested themselves throughout the organization had to evolve. 
I think it's important for any leader, anyone in an organization really, but especially leaders to kind of know where they plug in, where they fit the best and adapt if they can or, or know that it's time to move on. No, absolutely. I, you know, you, you see it, you have, you, you see people who have fun at one phase and then they, they're bored out of their mind at others. And then vice versa, you have, you have scalers who come into a startup and they're just, they're overwhelmed, right. By the, by the all hands on deck environment, the lack of process and, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure how far I could scale as CEO. Like I was pretty, I tried to be self-aware. I think I was pretty self-aware. I was, I, I was pretty good at the early phase as we started to evolve towards kind of that middle stage of growth and that late stage of growth. Every time we started to approach those new stages, I had to really evaluate like, Hey, am I, am I still the best person to lead us through this stage? And I could, I could sense where my gaps were as a leader or as an operator I was fortunate that over 12 years, I was able to fill in, at least to some degree, most of those gaps. And, and frankly, maybe one of the most important lessons is learning like, hey, this is a gap I ain't going to be able to fill, but I can hire against it, surround myself with really smart people that make me look good. <laughs> and, and my job is just to support them and stay out of their way. Like, that was probably one of the most important lessons I learned. Can you talk about how you guys thought of impact and how it was actually measured over time, how that, how that evolved throughout the years of the organization? Early on, we vacillated back and forth a little bit between whether or not we were a disaster response organization or a veteran service organization that just happened to respond to disasters. And, you know, I think a lot of that obviously was the impact of Clay's death, kind of the shadow of that. But it didn't take long for us, I mean, three years to settle on like, no, we're a disaster response organization. And and so now we've we've kind of come to talk talk to that in, in this way. Like we we have a single mission, which is responding to disasters with dual impact, right? And that first impact is helping the survivors and the communities impacted by these storms or catastrophes. And the second impact is that you know we we do provide this fulfilling purpose to both transitioning veterans uh, who are our volunteers, but also to you know our our non military uh, volunteers who we have you know, probably 35% of our ranks now never served in the military. And I think that that's, we, we can't lose sight of how important both of these impacts are. I mean, again, like we're there to help people on their worst day after storms and, and, and catastrophes. But as we see an increasingly fractured country, you know, communities pitted against one another in the U.S., this, you know, this, the Surgeon General coming out recently saying that that there's an epidemic of loneliness in the country and it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day on someone's mortality. You know, we can be a cure for that, bringing people together in a common cause under a common purpose. Uh, so cause and purpose, universal human needs. Man, is it powerful. Give them a sense of identity. Give them something to be proud of. It's really pretty amazing. It's really pretty amazing. When you think about brass tacks impact that TR does. How do you think about that? You know, as you're reporting out to the world, kind of the impact of what's going on? Yeah, we've been really laser focused on, in, you know, measuring impact and outcomes. It's, it's hard as anybody that's in the nonprofit space knows a lot of, there's a lot of organizations out there that do kind of a lot of hand waving and, and they, they say nice things about what their impacts are. You ask them for the receipts and, and they're not as good at producing those. And that's because it's just, frankly, it's hard to measure some of these things. I, I think a lot of organizations could do a better job of even just trying. Um, so for us, I mean, there's very concrete things that that we measure. We know exactly how many square feet of 
homes we mucked out following a flood. We know exactly how many cubic yards of debris that we removed, how many miles of road we cleared following a hurricane, how many homeowners were served. Like Those are all indisputable numbers that we collect and we track and we report out to maintain accountability with the people that are funding our missions. I think the human side of it's harder, right? So it's, you know, we've, we've tried in the past to conduct longitudinal surveys on our volunteers to see what types of human impacts we've had in their lives. Frankly, you know, outside of bringing a couple of PhDs onto the staff, determined that it was just perhaps that was where we could do some of the hand waving and say like, listen, we've got thousands of anecdotal stories about how we've profoundly improved people's lives. I have letters written to me by spouses who say, thank you for giving me my husband or my wife back. They were a curmudgeonly old shit for 10 years after coming back from Iraq, but now they're the person that I married again because they've rediscovered purpose. Like, I think we can, we can point to those things. And, and I think most of our investors can look at the, the hard empirical outputs and impacts that we can demonstrate on the disaster side. And it doesn't take a stretch to connect the dots on what we're doing on the human side. I thought it was really interesting how you called out, I forget where I saw this, but how the teams prioritize the sites to fix up with the highest socioeconomic impact, not the most severe damage. Yeah. And this was one of those things that was just a big learning that we had over the first couple of years. You know, when, when we were an unsophisticated outfit, we'd show up to Joplin, Missouri after a massive tornado and you know, lacking any sort of operational planning element, any sort of intelligence uh, element, you know, you'd, you'd kind of like drive into the town and you'd stop at the first neighborhood you saw that had damage and you just walk around, and start offering people to help. And if the median home price in that neighborhood was a quarter million dollars and unbeknownst to you, two miles further down the road, the median home price was $75,000 and largely a BIPOC community, like, yeah, you just didn't know, like, these people need help and who, who cares if they have insurance and they're going to be made whole. But we knew, we knew sometimes as we were sitting there helping some of these homeowners, we, we could kind of look around and say like, this might even be a vacation home, right? Like, and yeah, you felt you were still doing something nice for, you know, a fellow citizen, but you knew that there were people that needed something more. It's just how are you going to find them? So one of the things we do really, really well now is we have very sophisticated operational planning teams, mission planning uh, elements, and we use you know, these geospatial systems. We ingest all sorts of data sets like the U.S. Census data, uh, which has things like the social vulnerability index that we can kind of cross map against the, the damage and say, all right, like, hey, this corner, this census tract has average populations over the age of 65, median household incomes below the poverty line. And oh, by the way, there's fewer than one hospital bed per thousand citizens. And these are all indicators of a highly vulnerable population. We're gonna go there. And man, that feels a whole lot better. <laughs> Good on you guys for really elevating your own bars there. Well, I, you know, one of the things I've learned is this idea of equity is a kind of a buzzword in the kind of the progressive space and how can we make for a more equitable and just society? And, you know, when you talk about systemic inequities, you can see them very clear in a post-disaster environment. You know, the, the, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but like it is 
significantly more challenging for minorities to recover money from FEMA in a federally declared disaster. Like, I mean, the, the, the contrast is stark. You look at the fact that the majority of people that are living in flood prone areas are people of color. Cause that was the only place that they were allowed to build during the Jim Crow era. Like you, 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 you fall victim early in your time at team Rubicon going into community and looking around and saying, who's dumb enough to build here. And then you kind of peel back the, the layers of the onion a little bit. And you're like, oh, well, this black family that's had six generations live in this home, this is the only place that the city would let them build. And it just starts to make a lot more sense, right? We talk now a lot about addressing some of the systemic inequities in post-disaster scenarios and really fighting to equitably apply the work that we do to ensure that you know, people aren't left behind. The TR is at this time, you know, it's growing fast. It's sort of hockey sticking. There's exciting new things like this technology and new ways of measuring impact that you guys are doing. How do you know it's time to leave? And what was that decision like? I, I'm still amazed that I, I, I ran Team Rubicon for almost 12 years. Um, I don't think I ever intended to run it for more than two. Even, even at the time in 2011, when I said, okay, I'm all in, I'm all in. I'm going to drop everything else. Like I thought I'm going to do this for two years and then pass it off to somebody else. Um, and so coming into 2020, it was kind of my 10th year in the role. My plan was to transition out. Like that was the plan. I had my, my COO had been on board for four years and he was great. He was ready. Uh, and then we all know what happened in 2020, you know, COVID hit and uh, my plan to kind of leave in Q1 or Q2 of that, of that year completely went out the window because I knew like this is the biggest crisis the organization's ever faced and I'm not going to leave them now. So, you know, I wanted to lead the organization through, through COVID. And by the end of 2020, though, it was clear that we were going to survive. The organization, in fact, like stepped up to the plate in, in remarkable ways during COVID. And my second daughter was born and I just, I realized the organization was going to be fine, but it was going to be forever changed after COVID. And I just felt like it was the right time with that change coming to have the next leader in place to lead the organization through it. Because you're a little too close to home when you're the founder um, and you may not be willing to make the tough choices that are necessary on the backside of an event like that. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. I turned, uh, turned to art, my number two. And I said, art, uh, you know, you got the con, we, we put a transition plan in place and I, I stepped out and it was, it was great. And I think it's been great for the organization. They have thrived over the last two years without me. And I don't say that in any sort of self-deprecating way. I mean, they have not missed a beat and it's been amazing. Yeah. Well, it's a testament to the people and the culture and the structures that you put in place while you were there. So congratulations on a seamless exit. That's incredible. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, it, it does feel lucky because I, I, I unfortunately have watched some of my colleagues try to make the transition and it, listen, it doesn't always go well. Yeah, I mean, we probably did some things right. We probably got lucky in a few ways and it feels good. I, I kind of made the joke the other day. You always hear grandparents say being a grandparent's way better than being a parent because you can hand the baby back at any time when the baby starts crying. And it's kind of like being chairman of the board. It's like I get exactly the level of involvement that I want. And the moment the organization starts crying, I can hand it back to Art and say, okay, you take care of this. You go change the diaper. Did you know what you were going to do when you left? Or you just sort of needed a minute to clear your mind and see, see what's next? I did not have a plan. And I had, I call it a midlife crisis where, um, again, like I, it was late 2020. I knew the organization was going to survive COVID. My second daughter was born with a heart condition. We were at the hospital after her open heart surgery. 
fortunately she's fine, but I, I just had this moment. I maybe like, I freaked out a little bit and I'm like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I turned to my wife and I said, I'm going to step down as CEO of team Rubicon. She looked at me and she's like, you're out of your mind. She, she starts poking idea, you know, holes in the idea. She's like, what are you going to do? Do you have a job lined up? I'm like, no, but I won't think of the next thing unless I give myself the space to think of it. So I finally convinced her that it would work out. And, you know, I started communicating with folks and it only, you know, the idea for Groundswell came to me honestly within like six weeks. And I just, I knew, I knew as soon as I started thinking about it, I'm like, this is it. This is what I want to do for my next campaign. And it took a couple of months to pull the pieces together, but you know, haven't looked back since. What is Groundswell and what about it really, you know, resonated so much that you're like, this is, this is my next campaign. This is what I'm gonna do for the next period of my life. So again, for kind of context, we were, we became very successful at Team Rubicon. We grew a ton. And so by the time I stepped down, we'd raised close to $300 million in philanthropy. So I, I learned a lot about fundraising and how rich people give their money away, how companies give their money away, how normal people give their money away. And so the, really the, the goal with Groundswell is to democratize philanthropy. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, rich people, high net worth people have certain tools and resources at their disposal to give money away more efficiently that normal people like us don't have access to. And I never found that, again, going back to this idea of equity, I never found that to be equitable. I thought that there was no excuse in 2020 for only rich people to have access to things like donor advised funds or uh, consultations on issues and how to smartly give money away at a strategic or a tactical level. And then I also ran into just a ton of corporate giving programs that were terrible. They had anemic participation, terrible systems and process, times when you know, we were getting money for matching programs 180 days after an employee donated and the storm had passed, you know, five, you know, our operations had ceased four months ago. And like, I just thought this was just crazy. So we've, we've built a platform that is the world's most modern donor advised fund, modern, inclusive, and accessible. And we have packaged that as a, an employee benefit. So we sell software companies, they roll donor advised funds out to their employees as an employee benefit, like a 401k or a health savings account. Then they can automate their giving and matching programs through those, those donor advised funds. So we're giving these employees access to a, a tax advantage charitable giving vehicle that they've never had access to before because they're not rich. And we've eliminated 99% of the administrative burden for companies who are, who are managing you know, employee donation matching programs. I know it's super early stage, but what's early traction been like? What are you learning as you've gone? Well, just like starting a nonprofit in the shadow of the Great Recession was poor timing, starting a B2B software company uh, in the Great Recessionary period that we're in right now is also really poor timing. Listen, I mean, it, it's it's tough to be a software company right now, but we're we're doing really well. I think we're on plan. We've got bigger and bigger companies that are coming on board and going live at the platform. We've got some really exciting and like game-changing, innovative features that are coming out over the next six months that are going to be like game changers. And then I'm working on a top secret, top secret project internally, not ready for prime time yet, but um, taking groundswell and applying it very uniquely in a way that dovetails with a, a, a part of my previous, one of my previous lives, I'll be very coy about it, that we're really excited about. Um, it could be, it could actually become the entire company. Can't wait to hear more. We'll have to have you back on when that's ready for release and 
and we'll talk about it then. Yeah, um, we'll do the we'll do the postmortem on that. You mentioned, you know, the sense of naivete sort of parachuting into Haiti. With everything you know now, having built TR, successful company, moving on to private sector-ish stuff, would you still have done that? Or like, to, would Jake today still have done that? Or would you look back and be like, that was, <laughs> that was real dumb? I still occasionally will watch events unfold on the news and think to myself, if not Haiti, it would have been this event. Right. I, I looked at what happened in Ukraine a year ago and I thought, man, if I didn't have two young girls and I hadn't done Team Rubicon, I might be on an airplane to Kiev right now. And I don't know what that would have ultimately led to. I don't know if that's me joining their foreign legion and fighting or if it was would have been me in a humanitarian role. I don't know. But I, I you know, there's these moments of consequence that you see unfold before you. And I, I've seen a couple since then that I think I would have taken the leap on. Thanks so much for spending the time uh, and sharing insights. Hopefully we covered a lot of ground. We'll have you back on uh, when you're ready to announce some of these new features. And Excited. We'll, we'll do it again. But really admire you and the work you're doing. And, and thanks so much. Learn a lot I from you. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on Cause and Purpose. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. To connect with Jake and learn more about his work, you can find him on LinkedIn. And check out his new book, Once a Warrior, at jakewood.co. For information on Team Rubicon and information about how to revolutionize your employee giving program, check out teamrubiconusa.org and groundswell.io, respectively. There's more information, as always, including the transcript, in the show notes at causeandpurpose.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague who you think might find it valuable. You can follow, subscribe, or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, we'll be back with another longtime friend and collaborator in the space, Derek Feldman. Like many of us, whenever I need some data on giving behaviors among millennials, Gen Zs, or in the workplace, I've sought out Derek's research. He's one of the preeminent thought leaders in the space, especially around building social movements, and we couldn't be more excited to have him on the show. Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of Altruist.org. On behalf of myself, Jake, and our entire team, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.